0: Good evening everybody. How y'all doing? <laughs> hope you're having a good night. I always try to come in strong, kind of come in hot, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh God. Well, wow. hope your week is going well. You know, as always I like to remind people at the beginning of the show, um, and at the end of the show, you know, remember don't, a a bad morning doesn't have to be a bad day, right? A bad day doesn't have to be a bad week. So honor where you're at. Maybe it's necessary to sit longer and whatever you're feeling or struggling with or going through, but also hold space for the idea that sometimes it's meaningful and possible to kind of let go a little bit. Sometimes we kind of dig our heels in or forget that um, it's not something that needs any more time or attention to. I, I, I find myself doing that as well. I past couple days, you know, a few personal things have happened. And, um, I caught myself saying like, Oh man, here we go. And I thought, no, wait a minute. Yes, that just happened. And yes, you can feel really bad or frustrated, but that, that doesn't speak to what's coming next. And instead of, you know, deciding and determining and and maybe even creating, let me just actually hold space in a neutral way and just kind of go with the flow. I was watching, um, gosh, what show was it? Oh yeah. Uh, mayor of East town. And, you know, doing the kind of work I do. I <laughs> Sometimes people love watching shows with me or dissecting them and other times they don't because I tend to focus on things that were not the intended focal point of a show or a series <laughs> because I'm constantly tracking these other elements. And one of the things that was really fascinating <laughs> to me and wait till, I, wait till you see how I pull all this together, um, there was this one scene where a uh, secondary uh, um, investigative team, essentially, I think through the... Um, you know, tobacco and firearms, or arm of the, you know, carceral system came in and they were saying, like, listen, you know, traditionally investigators will develop a theory and they'll kind of go after that theory as to who they think the suspect might be, where this investigator was saying, you know, that's not the best way to do this, nor is that even, you know, fair. What he said you should do is you follow the evidence and if it keeps leading you in different directions, you keep going in those directions because you're looking for truth, right? Right. And that was kind of what I was realizing uh, we often do with our moods where something happens and we don't, stay open to what's coming next in a neutral way and being guided by the flow of the day, which is going to be some ups and some downs or maybe all up or maybe all down, we tend to like get in the way and we tend to have a theory like, well, there goes the whole day or there goes the whole week or whatever it is. And, and, the, and the, the more honest and more mental health centered way of being is, yeah, let me attend to what actually is, but let me let the reality of the day guide me as opposed to determining, as in that example, who the suspect is and then finding supportive and corroborating evidence, you, you know what I mean? Because sure, if you had a bad day and you're determining it's a bad week or a bad month, there's plenty out there that you can be like, see that and that over there, see I was right. And the better position is, you know what? I don't know what's coming and I'm gonna be open to it. You know what I mean? And so kind of just saying, yeah, I the rest of the night, how do I want it to be? It also comes up um, in some you know, therapeutic dynamics where an individual might say, you know, I have this weekend coming and uh, I'm really excited about it. However, this is going and I'll say, listen, how do you want this weekend to go? And they might say, I really wanted it to be fun. And I'll say, great, focus on that and let go of the things that are outside of that. Don't worry so much at your kid's birthday party about um, all the cupcakes being there and looking great. Don't worry so much about the weather. Don't worry so much about, you know, maybe the uh, entertainment being late. If you want it to be fun, focus on the fun. You know what I mean? Letting these external factors go. All this to say is some things will happen that will determine our mood and our thoughts and our feelings, but it's often like a wave, like craving, where if we ride it out, a new experience shows up, sometimes better, sometimes worse. But we have to create that that, that space. And in, in the therapy field, we talk about negative capability, which is basically showing up to each client to who they might be that day and not saying, oh, well, he's a narcissist, so everything's gonna be narcissistic and I'm gonna see everything he does through the lens of narcissism. People are always ebbing and flowing and changing and they're more than one thing, but so is our day and our week. It's complex, but we tend to look for corroborating evidence Around the theory we determined about ourselves or things. And I say that to people with social anxiety. What if it's actually fun? What if you go in there neutral, letting it tell you what it's going to be? Or what if you go in there saying, let me find fun? Because even though there might also be a lot of stress or anxiety or people or things I don't want to see, what if at the same time, right behind it or in the other direction is the opposite? Be open to that. And that's kind of what I had to do. I have a lot of social anxiety, which is very surprising to people. I also have some small levels of agoraphobia where I'm more prefer to be at home, away from certain spaces and places and people, but I also, when I go out into the world, I'll say, be open to what is actually there. Don't go in deciding already ahead of time what it's going to be, and we often do that in our lives in many different ways in our relationships. We do that with people. You know, We give them a label, and we only see them as that thing, and we ignore contrary evidence or complexifying evidence where maybe they're both. Maybe it ebbs and flows, right? Every bad person's done some good things and every good person's done some bad things. We are, you know, complex. We are fluid. We are multifrenic. We are protean, which means always changing, always contextualized. It's a beautiful thing that chaos actually is health. So all that to say, however the day might have been, however the week might be going, something new to come. Hold space for that. You know, we don't know what that's going to be. However, we got a great show planned for you. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about positive psychology. Stick around. I'll tell you more about it, but there's a lot we can learn from it. And then uh, we'll be gliding into those DMs. So if you've got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. We'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris, brought to you by AstroGlide.
2: All lowercase. Go to Shopify.com/slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com/slash Odyssey Podcast.
0: All right, we're back, and uh, talking about this interesting area of study in the field of psychology called positive psychology didn't really take off. It had a moment a while ago still going but it, it wasn't as profound as i think the field thought it might be and it, it, it's still a, a sub genre you can really study the work and make it kind of your clinical perspective or clinical lens really great stuff i just don't think that it's uh, total on its own and for some people it can be very misused and turned into toxic forms of positivity um But positive psychology, I mean, if I had to distill it all down, it's basically saying that we do know through research what are some of the more important things that we should be focusing on so as to develop as best as we can um, the most positive, happy foundation, right? Um, Now, one of the people who's a part of that put out some really interesting work. And what I think is interesting about it is what it uncovers and what it tells us. Some of it's just reinforcing and reaffirming, and then some of it is still some new information. So here's one of the first things that came out of a lot of this research that I thought was really profound. The first statement is, a lot of people are very happy. Now, that might sound really simple, but I think that there's a lot in that, that as hard as things might be, as many injustices as there are and i'm thankful that they're getting unearthed and dissected and examined and i know people are like oh my god pronouns oh my god critical race theory oh my god you know what is it uh a c a b you know all this stuff about the carceral system well it's us really uh, even the death of indigenous people at these boarding schools in the united states and canada and and homophobia it's 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 unearthing it's critically analyzing our culture, and that leads to making some necessary changes, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, a lot of people are happy. That It also tells us that happiness is commonplace. Also, in that research, happiness levels are highly uniform across the United States. So how does that get to exist while at the same time looking at unemployment, homelessness, and all these other factors that are happening. And that's kind of where the field starts to really produce what it takes and why those people are happy in the ways that they are. But I just liked that global perspective that we're maybe not as miserable as everyone thinks we are. And it's easy to think that. It's easy for even a therapist to think that. You know, People are coming in that are often in a lot of strife and struggle, and it's not even just things that they might be doing or not doing. It's also an acknowledgement of some of the systems and institutions that are horrible and heinous that these people are oppressed by or at the mercy of, right? Because we always have to look at the macro. No one is living or existing in a vacuum. We always have to look at, well, how is their race in there? How is their socioeconomics a part of this? Uh, How might their job be a component of that? How might patriarchy be woven into this, right? Um, But people are still generally mostly happy, That doesn't mean there isn't change needed. It doesn't mean there aren't injustices, but I thought that that was a really profound reminder and that's inspiring to me, right? Um, Here's another second piece that might be interesting to you or not. Race and education matter powerfully for happiness. And some people might think it might be more about socioeconomics. Well, it's about the money you have. Nope, it's about education and race. So let's dig deeper. It was looking at racial minorities. So of course, often if you're not white, everyone's put in the same bucket and that's racist and problematic. Um, I'm just working off of the research that I'm looking at. And it said uh, 18% were very happy and 57% were pretty happy. That's about 80%. I mean, sit with that for a second. That was really profound for me. Now again, we have a thousand questions, sample size, right? Analyzation of the research, etc., 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 confirmation biases in there. But I thought that that was really, really, really profound. Now we push it further. And they said, um, when you examine racial differences within education levels, for all races, unhappiness declines with higher levels of education. So it's basically saying, is all things equal, which they never are and can't be, but nonetheless, <laughs> research loves to to propose things based on that. Um, regardless of race, as individuals get higher levels of education, their happiness decreases. Now is that because of um, a sense of, not autonomy, but a sense of power? Is that because of opportunity? real or imagined? Because sometimes it's about imagined opportunity. We've been socialized to believe that the more education you have, the more job options, the more financial you know, security. Is it real or imagined? Um, the data isn't 100% clear on that, but it looks at the fact that nonetheless, if you're just trying to say, what are the things that I could try to participate in or what are the changes I can make so as to give myself the best shot I can in terms of feeling happy in my life, higher levels of education supposedly are part of that. I think I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, when I look at my educational experience, which I've done a lot of, it got me out of the house. I met like-minded, interesting people, people that I could talk about the things that I'm interested in. I was putting a lot of time and energy into the study and work around things that were stimulating. Like, all of that is definitely gonna make someone happy. You have the perception, real or imagined, of more doors being opened in terms of career. Uh, culture. We have, you know, things like respectability politics and desirability politics and whether you agree with them or not. And I don't agree with them. I think they're, they're problematic, but uh, it will tell you that most people will desire dating or will put more respect behind someone with higher levels of education. Of course, seeking that and having that is going to increase your levels of happiness. You are seen as more competent or worthy of respect in our culture. Again, more dateable, all of that's tied in there. And that's meaningful. We actually have to take a little break. When we come back, we'll keep breaking this on down. If you got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. And uh, past episodes of Loveline, please go over, show us some love, binge, post, share. And while you're over there, check out some of the other shows. That's at wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for my face, click on it. Bam, blam, there they are. And uh, when we come back, we'll keep talking about this. Because again, I think that this research is important because... Regardless of what it is, the mechanism behind something, having a little bit of a better understanding as to what are some of the things that the happier people are engaging in kind of indicates to us some of the changes we can make and hope for that as well. So we'll come back. We'll uh, unpack that more. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we are back and uh, I've kind of been bouncing all over though, centering this Really powerful piece of research I was looking at that was talking about positive psychology, which is really studies into what are the things going on in individuals' lives that have led them to really feel at their best and happiest out in the world. And it's ever-evolving information, but I think that there's something meaningful in it because it can give us a lens. It can give us some goals. And before the break, you know, there's... The research doesn't dive deep into why, it just shows a lot of outcomes, so we have to kind of make sense of it and unpack it ourselves. But it was saying that people are happier than we believe, and I was like, oh, that's important to know. I mean, if nothing else, that made me feel a little bit better. Also, looking at the fact that race and education matter as part of happiness. Well, that makes sense. We live in a white supremacist culture. If you're white, you're going to be a lot happier because the world's really catering and centering you. If you're a person of color of any kind, you're going to be seeing a lot of oppression and violence literally in your life, but also in the lives of others. And I appreciated during this time working with some individuals that aren't white and them saying how... It just really reinforces trauma vicariously and 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 literally um, watching the struggles of others, and that we have what we're calling like trauma porn, where people are making movies and news outlets are showing some really really violent stuff as a way to get viewers and to get eyes on their network or on their movie, and it's traumatizing people. Um, it's kind of gross, but. Uh, all of that's meaningful to me. Also, education they're saying education is a powerful part of happiness, and it's not that you know if you're more educated, you somehow are just naturally going to have more access to happiness, as much as there's real and imagined um, benefits that come with education, and also it can enhance someone's sense of self. Also, out in the social world, there's a lot of um, valor and respect that's brought to people with higher levels of at higher levels of education, which I think should be afforded to literally everyone. I think everyone should get the same levels of respect. I don't like that we have an invisible, well actually a very visible hierarchy of who we think deserves that most. I don't agree with that. Everyone does because they're human. But I'm not everyone, the world doesn't agree with me, right? We're constantly encountering places and spaces and people that could let you know who they think is better than who based on what, we live in a classless culture. Education dismantles some of that, it elevates some. Again, I don't think that that should be the way that it is but I'm looking at this piece of research. Um, here's another interesting thing that came out of it, positive and negative experiences are independent. And what that means is one doesn't impact or feed the other, right? That, someone who has let's say a a lot of frequency around positive experiences they have a lot of them that doesn't necessarily impact how often they experience negative things so what that means is the 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 constant or the more beneficial things don't in any way soften or remove some of the negative that life is what it is and if you have more of one or less of the other they don't necessarily impact each other which I get, if you're dealing with some difficult things, stepping into a few positive things, if you're really emotionally available, doesn't undo some of your constant struggles. We need time away, we need distraction. But one doesn't necessarily undo the other. I thought that this was interesting. Well-being shows a high level of stability. Well, that, that makes sense to me. Also socializing and novelty seeking are strong correlates of well-being. So basically what it means is that the strongest predictors of positive experiences, one of them was making new friends, Another was meeting new people, and another was travel. But we knew that, you know, newness is one of the most stimulating things. And that comes up a lot in my work as a sex therapist. Like, we always want to seek newness and novelty. That's what's really exciting. That's what draws us out. Familiarity and consistency and comfortable can actually feel flat. And that's what that's saying. So if you feel like your life is like, eh, try creating and stepping out into new experiences, try meeting some new people, which, is about new experiences, and that that is a strong indicator of an increase in happiness. In contrast, none of the indicators of socializing or novelty-seeking are correlated with negative experiences. So that's good. What's the headline in that, though? Well, the headline is that if you wanna understand whether someone had a good day or not, check in to see if they felt like they've learned anything that day. Because if they did, they met someone new, they learned something new, they had a new experience, most likely they'll say I had a really great day. Where if the day was a little familiar, you know, little by the book. Most likely, it'll be flat and maybe even negative. Um, so we can do something with that, though. So if you're you're having one of those days, say, is there any way I can step into some something kind of new or novel in this? Also, thought this was interesting. We have a lot of research to back this up. That income is not that important to well-being. We have studies done around that. Uh, a lot of the really robust stuff comes out of looking at lottery winners, where there's literally a time frame. I think it's nine months max, where this new amount of money, a bump up in pay or whatever it is only gives us about that amount of time where it really makes us happier and then it just becomes the new norm and everything raises up and meets at that level because we spend the way we spend, we have the kind of relationship we have with money and so we will bring that from, let's say I'm making these numbers up, but if we made let's say 50,000 that year, whatever level of happiness we have, if it doubles and we make 100, for six to nine months we'll be living life, but then our spending habits really impact that and it becomes just the way we live. And so it's not about just seeking more money as though the more I make, the more I make, my happiness is gonna keep increasing. No, your, your level of living and spending will adjust and balance it out, um, which I think is great because you can only keep trying to make so much money. It's not one of those things you can keep pushing for. Man, time is flying. All right, we gotta take another break. When we come back, we're gonna be gliding into those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. You're listening to Loveline. With Dr. Chris on Channel Q, brought to you by Astroglide. Stick around, we'll be back. All right, now we're back and it's time to glide into those DMs. Brought to you by Astroglide.
1: Gliding into the DMs.
0: Yeah, I gotta talk about this. Lube improves and helps out with everything. If someone said to me, what's the one and only sex thing or sex tip you can recommend? I'd say more lube for thousands of reasons. I don't want anyone to hurt themselves, chafe themselves. It adds some interesting sensations, right? Also helps with those that, you know, when we're masturbating, having solo sexuality, It kind of lends ourselves to have our our, our arousal and, and sensitivity transferable to partnered sex. Some people masturbate in ways that don't mimic how they might need to have sex with a partner, and they get really familiarized with sensation or intensity or grip, and a partner's body can't always mimic that, and so lube lessens that up. So lessen up that grip, lessen up that severity and intensity, use some lube. Um, especially on toys, but make sure you're cleaning, you're washing your hands between partners, cleaning your sex toys between partners. Uh, But anyway, let's glide into those DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, how do you know if you did the right thing by breaking up with someone? Oh, that's a good question. We weren't toxic, but we haven't been good in a long time. Probably before the pandemic. She told me I was giving up on us but I feel like all I've been doing is trying and I'm just exhausted. Now I'm having thoughts that maybe I could have tried more, but I really don't know what else I could have done. So without knowing the details, I appreciate it. If the relationship was really toxic, well then that's pretty clear. But when it's not, it's really hard for us to feel secure that this is best for us, best for us. But remember, the reason why I don't like the word breakups um, are because it implies bad, broken, or, or finite. And what I really think it is is we transition, it's a transition. We transitioned is what people should say. We were romantic sex partners or we were monogamous and now we've decided to be better if we transitioned into friendship. And you be friends and know that we can always circle back. If you realize through separating romantically and sexually and moving into friendship that you miss them romantically, you can always start dating again and then you can even take a break again. I work with couples that get divorced for years And then somehow magically reconnect. And I've worked with two that then got remarried again. There's nothing wrong with that. Just like it's okay at any point in your life to say, I want a new career maybe. Maybe I want to go back to school. It's okay to say, I think I want to be single for a while. It's okay to also say, you know what? Through time, weeks, months, years, other relationships, I actually have been still thinking about my ex and I think maybe we're in a better place or I think I'm better suited for them now. It's okay to try again. It should never be final. We're allowed to circle back. I like people keeping the door open. We don't break up, we transition. And this is for healthy adults. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're all healthy. If you burn it down and you're a hot mess, well, then you're right. You've made it unsafe to be in their life. You've actually made it unsafe for you to be in anyone's life if that's how you exit. Um, But if we leave lovingly and we do the work, well, then we maybe transition out and maybe we transition back. It doesn't have to be forever. And that's part of that panic. Did I make the wrong decision? Well, you don't have to make a decision, a permanent one. You made one for right now. And right now it made sense to not be with her. So tell that to her. Right now it makes sense for me to not be with you. However, If that changes, I will reach out and we can try again. And if you're available and interested, we'll try. it. And if not, well, then you're fine because you will be with someone you'd rather be with. And if not, I hope you'll give me a chance. And that leaves the door open and there's nothing wrong with that. We have to stop being so binary and finite. It's in or out, you're gay or straight, you're a boy or a girl, we're together or we're not. No, life is not like that. It's more complex, it's more fluid. It's more beautiful than that. It's more creative than that. There's nothing wrong with circling back. I've done that before in my past. And that's why it's not a breakup. It's a transition. We transitioned from not knowing each other into romance, and now we've transitioned into friendship, and we never we don't know where we'll land next. And that's what I think is so beautiful. And funny enough, we're gonna be talking, we're gonna come back and talk about outgrowing friendships. So you might learn a little bit in the next segment as well uh, around some perspectives to apply, but again, If we always, if we don't make everything so finite and we don't leave poorly and we don't burn things down and we leave when things are okay but they're not working anymore, then we can circle back. But people ride it till it's dead or they leave horribly and they're quite toxic at the end and then we can't ever transition back and we can't even maybe transition into friendship. Let's be better and let's do better, you know? Um, coming up next, we'll be talking about outgrowing a friendship and then, uh, we'll later in the show be gliding back in those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page and past episodes are over at wearechannelq.com. So stick around. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on Channel Q brought to you by Astroglide.
1: Gliding into the DMs is brought to you by Astroglide.
0: All right, we're back and talking about friendships. More importantly, outgrowing them. I, I, I shared this. We talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. Actually, maybe it was a couple months ago. And I was kind of sharing about the fact that I was going through that a little bit my, myself with someone. And I think it's a really funky, difficult thing to acknowledge and talk about outgrowing people, places, and things. And it's coming up more and more because in my practice and even in my own personal life, I'm seeing more and more people uh, start to step into sobriety. And that really brings up this as a topic. And so I wanted to kind of cover both points, like this ever expanding world of sobriety, but then also friendships and changes and leaving people behind. So a couple things, you know, we really do in terms of mental health, always want to assess the impact that those in our lives are having on us. And it's okay to realize, wow, You know, I don't enjoy necessarily spending time with someone, or the things that used to really anchor us and bring us together and that we would share isn't there anymore. And it's okay to have people around that maybe aren't your favorite people, but they're not necessarily bad for you. So this isn't really about putting a judgment on everyone and everything. This is really more of a conversation of those people who specifically, in a very easy identifiable way, you have clearly outgrown, or you don't enjoy your time with them. So first I wanna talk about What are some of the things to kind of call out or acknowledge or really help you ground yourself in the fact that like, wow, maybe I've outgrown this person or maybe we just are very different people at this point. You know, again, we talk about this with romantic relationships. We're not always gonna grow in a synchronized, compatible way with everyone in our lives. Life just doesn't work like that. And we've built a culture where we're all about holding on to things. And on one hand, I like that. On another hand, I think sometimes it doesn't serve us, where people say things like, family's forever. Well, no. (laughs) Healthy people are forever. And whether your blood or a family member doesn't give you a pass to be toxic or mistreat someone. It just doesn't. And it doesn't matter if someone's been your best friend since second grade, if there's really nothing there for you anymore or they're negatively impacting you. It's time to kind of part ways. So what are some of the things we look we look for or think about? Well, the first one is if it's depleting, what does it feel like before, during, and after you spend time with someone? I, I have to remind everyone of that again. When someone reaches out and you see them calling or you got a text message from them, how does that, what's your first thought or feeling? That's a good indicator, romantically or non-romantically, but we're talking generally non-romantically right now, but that that's meaningful to me. You see them calling on the phone, family member, friend, whatever it is. How do you feel? How about while you're on the phone with them or spending time with them? And then if I interviewed you afterwards, what would you walk away saying you feel or think? Because we're giving people a break. Everyone's going through what they're going through. But if every time they call or reach out, you're like, oh, man, now what? And while you're with them, you're like, wow, this just feels depleting, I don't feel seen, I don't feel heard, I'm not sure why I'm here. And then when you walk away, you're like, wow, I feel frustrated, or I feel worse off, or I don't like the way that you know I feel, or whatever it is. That's a sign that maybe this isn't someone who should be in your life. And I wanna look for a pattern, because people are gonna have a bad day, or a bad week, or a bad month, right? So it's not about saying like, every time I need to be excited they called, or every time I see them I need to walk away going, wow, that was a real zinger. Generally speaking, yes, (laughs) it should be neutral to positive. But if you're seeing a pattern where when they're calling, you're constantly frustrated and ignoring them, you're not enjoying your time with them, and afterwards you feel worse, there's no reason to necessarily hold on to that. I do like the idea of talking some of these things out if the person's mature enough and understands. I had a friend that I had to release who no matter how I approached it or how I discussed it or how I clarified it and how compassionate I was trying to be, and they weren't weren't quite understanding who I was now, what I needed, and so I just had to start to part. And it's... It's not ghosting if you're trying. It's not ghosting if you're trying to explain to them, you're trying to clarify. If they're not getting or they're not understanding, sometimes you just do drift away. Uh, I want us to have responsibility for others, but sometimes it's just they're in a different place and that's okay. So is the relationship depleting rather than invigorating? Also, what version of you is there while you're there with them? Is it this outdated, expired version of you? Is it a part of you that you don't like being brought back to? And this is where sobriety comes in. A lot of people I work with are like, hey, listen, I got sober. And yes, there are some of my old drinking friends, they might say, that I can still see in some drinking dynamics, some non drinking dynamics. But when I'm with them, I feel like I'm back in my old behavior because of how they're acting, how I act when I'm around them, or the topics they want to talk about, or the things they want to do. You might have outgrown them. We can't always transfer that over. Sometimes when we get sober, we have to build a whole new world. Sometimes as we mature, or we move into a new milestone in our lives, we need to build a whole new world or a partial world. That's okay, that's part of adulthood. Who you were friends with or what made sense or how you connected at one point doesn't always carry forward with us. And sobriety is a really clear, easy, great example of that. Where now you want to maybe go to bed earlier and get up earlier, right? Now you're not participating in everything that involves alcohol. You know, it shifts who you are, your world, what you want, we want to talk about. Um, Because ideally those that, can be in our lives longer, they evolve with us, right? They're always able to participate in what we're doing and us with them. It, it mutually reinforces that. But if you're feeling stuck, and that's why I like the word, an expired version of yourself. It's constantly like this bad throwback, where you're like, I don't think that way anymore, or, I don't want to, or I don't like it doing those certain things, or having those kinds of conversations. That's them holding you stuck. It's a stuck friendship. You know what I mean? Maybe you're no longer the funny guy or the punchy person or the party person, and they're constantly trying to bring that part back or bring that part out. Uh, we're gonna take a little break, and when we come back, we're gonna keep talking about this, how friendships evolve and how they change, especially through sobriety, because something I wanna talk more about because there's a lot more people kind of jumping into that. I think some of it's pandemic-related, you know? Um, all right, we'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on Channel Q, brought to you by AstroGlide. All oh, right, we're back and we're talking about friendships, evolving, changing, growing, specifically about sobriety. That's what came out of, uh, gosh, some of the pandemic stuff is people either got uncomfortable with where their relationship to drugs or alcohol went or they were very self-reflective and had time apart and they're like, hey, I like the new people in my life. I like going to bed early. I like getting out and doing different things. Sometimes we can hold both <clears throat> our prior lives and friends and our new life and friends. Sometimes we can't, right? Um, because sometimes they're not interested in participating with the sober version of you or those sober things. Sometimes our prior group and our friends are like, hey, we like what we do, we like who we are, and that's okay. It's not about bad or good or right or wrong, it's about how do I feel and who am I, right? Um, And sometimes, again, people want us to be that party guy, that crazy person, that popular person, that funny person, whatever it is, and we might not any longer feel identified with that person or interested in those behaviors. Also, sometimes the effort just stops. You know, and that's really hard when you're no longer reaching out or they're no longer reaching out. But I don't want people to panic. I do like again the idea that we can kind of talk talk this out, talk this through, but sometimes there's nothing to talk out or talk through. Cause maybe there's nothing broken, nothing bad, nothing wrong, nothing fixable. It's just we're in different places and we don't relate anymore. And that's okay. We don't have to villainize or traumatize that experience or that person. It can still be you're awesome and I love you. And like, keep in touch, we'll text sometimes, but like, I don't need to be part of that squad anymore, or I can't be your go to, your wingman or wing girl or whatever it is, um, your wing person, because that's just not really what's important to me anymore. And I saw that as my career evolved, as my relationship evolved, as I left drinking. Um, I realized that like, I needed that to be there for some of the people to stay in my life because I didn't want to be around them sober. And being around them sober, I was like, oh, you know what I mean? or the things I wanted to do and the places I wanted to go, they didn't or they weren't comfortable or they wanted to somehow find a way to bring alcohol into that. Like, it's amazing to me that some people can't imagine going to a dinner party or a birthday party or a game night or an event and not drinking or having not drank before. It's okay to do certain things sober, but our culture and big alcohol is a big part of this. Alcohol loves infusing itself in everything. You'll see them branded on everything. Um, they love being associated with every major milestone in an event, and they are. It's quite fascinating when you look at how many things are paired with alcohol or expected to have it, right? Every holiday, celebration, good night, a bad night, all sorts of things. And it's okay to drift away from that. And also know that periods of less friends, lower levels of social- socialization, sometimes complete friendlessness, sometimes is the path towards finding better and more of what we want and sometimes those those motivating spaces. But the work becomes about then saying, well, who am I really? What kind of things do I want in my life? And if I participate in those things, I'll be then maybe encountering or able to socialize with or build a network rooted around who I am now what I like. So it might be lonely to start being that person that gets up early and is going hiking or whatnot, but that's where you will also see other people like yourself who you might have more compatibility with and the more you're there, the more familiar you become, and they become, and you kind of start to evolve into that. Which is why some people love meetings if they get sober, or just more daytime things, or they start throwing game nights or parties at their house that that aren't centered around alcohol, travel that isn't necessarily party related. Like, hey, let's go to this destination, but here's all the things I want to do in the restaurants I want to eat at, and maybe it's more of an early night, get up, whatever it is, you know. But the whole bigger point of all this is, this is a, this is a healthy, acceptable thing. We don't need to feel bad about it, and don't shame yourself for it. And if you're the person who might be left behind because one of your friends feels as though that there's not a lot of compatibility there or things are different, don't take that personally. Because it's not necessarily that you're bad or wrong or broken as a friend or a person, it's just that the things that you had in common aren't there anymore. Or the things you like to do aren't the things that they like to do. Or some of the spaces or people you hang out with might trigger them and their sobriety. And that's just fact, right? And there's tons of people that are still interested in doing what you do. When I drive through wherever, West Hollywood or Hollywood, I see tons of people out at the bars. Like that's gonna thrive and continue forward. So go, go be with your people, but still also do try to reach out to those that maybe aren't doing that anymore because maybe they're not trying to lose you or take space. They might just not know how to still be in your life. They might think that maybe you don't want them in your life. So it's important for us to still have these conversations like, hey, I'm not drinking anymore or hey, I don't enjoy said thing or activity, but there are still maybe other things we can now go do. So we can sometimes take people forward with us. But that's another final landing point is like you've outgrown a friendship if you have just have nothing in common anymore, right? Like, what are you talking about? What are you bonding around? What are you out doing together? Because that's part of relationality is having someone to bear witness, um someone to witness your life, someone to be your companion on your journey. But we have to both be on the same journey or at least value that journey. Because again, differences are fine, even in romantic relationships, just about having respect. But sometimes, we outgrow and we don't longer value or respect what we used to do. Doesn't mean we don't respect or value the person, but the things we used to do together we don't anymore. Also happens when people get married and have children. They become a parent and I want them to still participate in their social lives, but sometimes their value system changes or their availability changes and that can shift them out of being able to participate in their prior social life because of the time of night or the travel or whatever it is, you know? That happened with me <clears throat> when I stopped drinking, but also when I got into a relationship. Not drinking and not being single, I wasn't interested in participating in a lot of things, which by the way, I never enjoyed bar or or club culture anyway. That wasn't safe for me for a multitude of reasons, my social anxiety and all that. But I can't hear people. I'm a talker. I like to connect on intimate levels through philosophy, conversation. But um It doesn't mean to shame all of those spaces and those people. It's just to say that's not important or meaningful to me anymore. It's not a hierarchy, you know what I mean, of better than, right, or above. It's just different, you know, things shift. We want to be open to that. But just know we can take some people with us, but sometimes we can't, and that's okay. Second phase of life is often about reorienting all of that, you know. People call it a midlife crisis. It's really a midlife breakthrough where you examine all the things in your life and say like, how do I want the next phase to be? It's a beautiful space. Uh, We got to take a little break. We'll be back and uh, we'll be closing out the show later with some DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. And uh, as always, past episodes over at wearechannelq.com. We'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back. And uh, gosh, breaking down this topic of... (laughs) Here's the headline. How does your sex partner number stack up against other Americans? I mean, ideally, the answer is it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what the average is or the norm. That doesn't mean that that's best or right or correct or healthy, right? Everyone's number of sexual partners is going to be far different. And as I've said before on the show, I don't think people should disclose ever the number of partners they've had sex with unless they're with a really mentally healthy, sex-positive partner because there's nothing to learn in that at all. It promises nothing. It tells us nothing. If there's a high number, a low number, and it's often a loaded question where someone's trying to determine your worth as a person or how much they can trust you, and that information doesn't provide that. So I usually tell people to say something like, hey, I'm not really comfortable answering that question. What was it you were looking to find out? Oh, I just wanted to know. Well, no, something you're looking to find out. Maybe I can answer that more directly. Like, what are you really trying to figure out? I'll give you the ad answer. You know, it doesn't need to be tied to a number. Uh, we have a very, you know, sex-negative, slut-shaming culture. It's heartbreaking. People really will decide someone's worth as a partner or a parent based on these numbers. So much work to do. Um, and it was interesting when I looked at the information. Um, the top three states that lie about their sex partner number... <laughs> I just like that that's even part of someone's study. So check this out. The top three states where people lied about their number was Connecticut, Wisconsin, and Kansas. You know, kind of distinct places. Um, Again, I would have to believe that when someone withholds information, it's to protect themselves. We withhold information when we don't feel safe expressing truth. So I have to believe that the individuals surveyed, which can never be applied universally to the entire state or city, remember that. When someone says, oh, we did a research of you know men about blah, 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 it's like, well, all you told me is about the men you interviewed. You can never apply research universally because I don't know the race of those men, the class of those men, the sexual orientation, um, all those factors actually matter profoundly. Well, how are the questions worded? Was it in real time in reporting or did they hand in an anonymous survey? Because that matters. We will get more honest answers if the uh, surveys or questions are anonymous versus an in-person interview. And the interviewer matters. Are they judgmental? How are they asking the questions? So be very thoughtful about when we say, oh, research shows. It's like, oh my God, I have so many questions. So that's not a profound thing to me. Um, The top three states that this research showed that had the highest average of partners. This is also fascinating. Washington, Connecticut, and New Mexico. Like that's so arbitrary. Good old Connecticut. People there are both lying about their numbers and having the highest number, which is interesting because if the other places were Washington and New Mexico, why are the people in Kansas and Wisconsin withholding? It has to be, again, social environment, not feeling safe, not being sex positive. Um, the stigma around your number in the United States, 16% of people feel that there is a stigma for those that have a higher number. That's actually pretty low. I would have thought that it'd be a higher number. Um, 73% felt that there's a stigma for women that I think is actually higher as well. You know, that double standard that we are still battling and dismantling 50% felt that there's a stigma for a higher number for men. I'm actually surprised it's that high. Um, 16% have not slept with someone because of their number. Sit with that. They heard a number that they were not comfortable with and made a decision about how safe they thought that partner was, uh, sexual health and wellness. Uh, That's unfortunate. Uh, 14% assume homosexual people, I like hearing that word, homosexual people. We tend to say the word gay, but you know, you do you, Uh, that they have more, uh, 14% thought that homosexual people had more sex partners than uh, straight people. Again, very sex shaming, very homophobic, even use that word in that way. So I thought that was wild. And now it gets a little more interesting, too, this research. When asked about the sex acts that counted, see again, here's the here, I'm, I'm helping you all learn how to critically analyze research. When they said, oh, we asked people about their sex lives, well, what was your definition of sex? Did you tell them what you meant with that word? Because everyone sees that word differently, as per this piece right here. 56% only counted penetrative sex as sex when asked. 43% counted non-penetrative sex as well. So you have to define the word. So if you say to someone, we're talking about sex, you have to make sure you all are thinking the same way about what sex even is. I tell you that all the time about monogamy. People make that pact, but then don't discuss what does that word mean? What do we think the limits of that are? Are there gray areas, right? You have to talk about that. Um, and then, uh, f- yeah, we already said the 14%. So there's work to do. And then here we go, 8 percent have slept with a previous partner again to avoid adding to their number. There's so much stigma about that number, which you don't have to disclose and you can misrepresent if you need to in service of your mental health and safety. But 8% of people were like, ah, I don't want to have to imagine a higher number. I'm going to slut shame myself. And so I'm going to go back to prior partners. So as to keep that number in the same place. It's like, Dear God, that's the solution. That's being better and healthier. Oh my God. Got so much work to do. That's why we're here. Um, are we going to take a little break and then we're going to glide into those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. And uh, past episodes of Loveline are always over at wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, click on it. Bam, bam, bam. There they all are. Post them, bin, share. Um, yeah, but when we come back, we'll be gliding into those DMs. So stick around. You're listening to Loveline. With Dr. Chris on Channel Q. Brought to you by AstroGlide. Stick around, we'll be back. All right, we're back, and uh, it's time to glide into those DMs, brought to you by Astroglide. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, my name is Alyssa. I'm 30, and my mom is 49. She had me at 19 years old. We are super close. I love that. There was a time when I used to hear people say things like, oh, that mother and daughter are too close, or blah, blah, blah. Look, these are false constructs. This is the person who's my caregiver. We can be friends with our parents. We can be friends with people of different age brackets, right? I love close relationality. We often, sadly, do that a lot to boys. We think it's boys can't have a close relationship with their mother. We feel like we have to rip them apart, make them a man. We push them into school too soon sometimes. None of that's mental health centered. Let people just be happy and comfortable, you know? So be close with your mom. Be close with your mom forever. Be your mom's roommate. Travel the world together. It doesn't matter if it's your mom, your neighbor, someone else. We just need. Caregivers and important people in our lives. Uh, She always brought men around, you say, and for the most part, they've been good, but they never seem to work out. Yeah, that's part of dating. We go through multiple relationships. We give people a chance. We date casually. We date seriously. No one meets one person and is with them forever. You know, we explore, we go through milestones. So don't, it sounds like you're kind of pathologizing that. Your mom gets to go for love as well. And it's okay for children to learn that dating is a process of spending time with different people and exploring and figuring out they wanna be with someone. I think it's our toxic monogamy, which is the toxic way we run monogamy, this monogamy obsession, which I'm not saying monogamy is bad, but we obsessively always think in those terms, which is we can only show commitment to one person. We don't want our children to know that dating is actually an explorative process with multiple people. We wanna make sure it's the right one to introduce them. That's not honest and that sets us up to think we can only have one choice and that's just not true um recently back to your question she told me that she's been dating a woman and wants me to meet her cool i love that i support her decisions i'm just a little nervous about it you say i'm afraid she's dating a woman for the wrong reasons or maybe because she sees that i'm a lesbian and wants to try it out herself i'm not sure well cool the only way you find out is by finding out i want everyone to explore different gendered partners for sex and dating If you've always identified as hetero, what would it mean if you were with someone of the same gender, dating, affection, sex? If you've always identified as gay, what would it mean to be with someone of the opposite sex? That was always my frustration. Um, I don't use labels for myself. I have no interest in that. It tells you nothing, it doesn't explain me. I've had sex with every gender expression, every body, shape, and size, every ability. I've dated every gender. Um, I don't use those terms. I identify as nothing, as fluid, as capital Q queer, meaning non-normative, I don't know, ask me in an hour. And I think we all should do that exploring. And I I talk about this in my book, Rebel Love. When I, early in my life, when I identified as hetero, no one ever said, hey, you ever tried being with a dude? I wish they had. I wish that that was supported. And then when I was exploring with the same sex, no one said, hey, when's the last time you were with someone of the opposite sex? I wish they had. Because we think in finite terms, you're gay or you're straight. and, And once you figure it out, that's forever. That's not true. Our sexual orientation is wide. It's vast. It changes. Totally changes. Not always about gender, but about what we want, how we want it, where we want it, it ebbs and it flows. I'm proud that your mom is like, I want to try being with a woman. And if I realize it's not right for me, I will stop. We can always circle back to whatever we were before. I prefer people being label-less. What's your orientation? Whatever I feel interested and drawn to. So I don't think there's a wrong reason because there's no negative to that exploration. Let it be the wrong reason. She might realize something great out of being led by a wrong reason. But the right reason is because she's curious. The right reason might be because she sees you being a lesbian. And she says, I see some interesting components of it that I'm curious about. Go try it. And if it's not right for you, you'll leave. There's no harm, no foul, nothing to worry about, no anxiety. Ask yourself, what am I really anxious about? Because there's no negative outcome in that story. Support your mom. Support her happiness keep your worries to yourself because they don't sound really like rooted in anything reality based or meaningful and um be glad that she's kind of going after what makes sense to her i'm really proud of people for doing that especially from later generations they weren't raised in a culture that told them it was okay to do that exploration they were raised in a very homophobic culture that said we will penalize you if you come out as gay and that forced some people to to move through their life as cis or hetero when maybe they wouldn't be or they're not and i like that people are going forward coming out as non-binary and queer the numbers are piling and piling not because there's more people but because it's safer there's more resources there's more support it's a beautiful thing all right that's the end of uh the dms if you got one for us drop in the dms on our loveline ig page that's also our show we'll be back though but you can check out past episodes over we are channel y'all thanks for hanging out have an awesome awesome rest of your week and uh Enjoy the rest of your night.
1: Gliding into the DMs is brought to you by Astroglide.
0: How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage.